you guys have your Bible, uh, find the New Testament book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. So, with our passage today, we are in the middle of this opening section of the book of Romans. This opening section of Romans, which to be honest is pretty pretty sobering, uh, maybe discouraging to some, I don't know, but for good reason. Um, remember how, just to remind us where we are in the book, remember how Paul started this letter, how he began it in the opening of chapter 1. We looked at that about a month ago, and thinking back to the opening of the letter, Paul began this letter stating up front that this letter that he's about to write is, is about is completely about defending and explaining uh, to this church in Rome what is the true gospel of, of salvation in Jesus Christ. He said in chapter 1, verse 2, that as an apostle, he was set apart for what? For the gospel of God. And that in verse 3, that this gospel is concerning his son, who is identified in verse 4 as Jesus Christ our Lord. And in the in-between there, that this gospel about Jesus Christ, is, it centers on the death and resurrection of, of this one and his victory over sin and his lordship over all things. And all of that led up to this thesis statement in chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this whole letter is about the gospel, about the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things, over all people, Jew and Gentile, and the salvation that is to be found only in him, only in his work for sinners, both Jews and Gentiles alike. That's what this letter's about. But to make that case, like, if it is true that Jesus Christ is the Savior from sin for both Jew and Gentile, Paul knows, and he's right, that it first needs to be demonstrated abundantly that both Jews and Gentiles are, in fact, sinners who are separated from God and in need of salvation. And that's what he does in these first three chapters. He has to begin with the bad news. I think I've said it before. The illustration is that you don't ever go see a fireworks show in the middle of the day. You always go at night when the sky is dark and black because it's against the darkness of the sky that the brilliance of the fireworks are seen. And the gospel's the same way. The brilliance of mercy, the brilliance of grace, the brilliance of the work of Christ is not going to be seen unless we first understand the blackness and darkness of our own sinful hearts and our own sad standing before God. And so that's what he's doing in these first three chapters, is showing exactly that. We've noted it many times already that chapter 1 focused on, he focused on Gentiles. Anybody that's not Jewish, that's us. Like Gentiles and how Gentiles are sinners and are under the judgment of God and in need of the salvation uh, of Jesus Christ. But now we're in chapter 2, and Paul in chapter 2 switches his focus away from Gentiles, but now to Jews. Because the church in Rome would have been a, a, a mixed Jewish and Gentile uh, church. But he, 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 he switches to Jews that, he's gonna, that he argues in chapter 2 who are in no better position than Gentiles before God because despite every advantage that the Jewish people had, they too are still sinners in need of his mercy and grace as much as Gentiles. In fact, Paul's going to argue that Jews are almost in greater need because they have squandered such 
advantage that they had. Um, and again, all this is, is leading up to this, chapter 1, chapter 2, Gentiles, Jews. It's leading up to chapter 3 and this, this climax near the end of chapter 3 that in fact all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you see at the end of chapter 3, you see how all of this darkness, all of this darkness of the first three chapters is actually redemptive in its purpose. It's actually leading you to something beautiful because he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in the very next words in, in verse 24, he says, now that you understand that, he says, now you can see clearly that salvation is, to quote verse 24 of chapter 3, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ to be received by faith. That's coming in chapter 3. But for now, we're, we're still in the, in, the, in the bad news of chapter 2, uh, where his focus is still on the condemnation that all are under because of our sin. So our passage today is chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. I put that in the group me yesterday. I hope some of you were able to read it ahead of time, maybe during the third or fourth quarter of that game. Um, Paul is still, still um, indicting the Jews, many of whom the unbelieving Jews would have still probably relied on their ethnicity uh, and their history as the covenant people of God for their hope of salvation. And Paul in our passage today is going to demonstrate the error of that assumption. So <clears throat> let's read it together and then we'll dive in and see what he has to say. It's just 12 to 16. So he writes, beginning in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For, that's, that's an important for, we'll see. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do, what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord, would you please, uh, because we... Uh, I think even as, as Logan uh, prayed in his prayer, we, we recognize um, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word, and we ask that because it is this, and we recognize it is this, you would give us eyes to see the truth that you have in these words. Would you give us minds to understand it? Because what Paul says here is not always easy to understand. So, Lord, would you please give us just really clear minds to understand what he says here, and 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 as Logan prayed, would you get would you give us hearts to embrace what is, uh, what is taught here, and wills to obey whatever it is that you admonishes us to do in this passage. Give us give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I, I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So as we try to think through what Paul says here and how it how it might apply to us still today, I think. There are three stages to, to Paul's flow of thought here. 
Uh, his, let me say it. What is, his, what is his point here? His point in this passage is really not any different than what his point was in what we saw last week, in the first part of chapter 2. Um, and, it's, and his point in this passage is not going to be any different than the passage we look at next week at the end of chapter 2. All of chapter 2 is making the same point, that, that Jews, like Gentiles, are by nature sinners who need Jesus. Okay, that's his point. But here, in, the, in these few verses that we just read, he sort of makes that point uh, in, 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 three, in three stages, three, you know, he's going to argue here. If you're taking notes, here's what we're going to see. And I had a hard time trying to figure out how to encapsulate what he's saying here, but here's the best I can do. First, he's going to argue the insufficiency of knowledge. The insufficiency of knowledge. He's going to make that point in verses 12 and 13. He's going to acknowledge that the Jews' possession of the law their knowledge of the law, that is a blessing from God, but in itself it is insufficient to save. Okay? The insufficiency of knowledge. But then he's going to, as the second point, he's going to demonstrate the proof of that in the second point that he makes, which I'm going to call the evidence of obedience. The evidence of obedience. Paul, having come down hard on Gentiles in chapter 1, I find it highly interesting that in, in verses 14 and 15, in this second point, he's going to point to Gentile, I think, believers as proof against the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, who, who might be tempted to find their security in their ethnicity, in their, in their possession of the law, of their knowledge of the law. And then thirdly and finally, he's going to sum up both of these points by reminding the reader, us, of the standard of judgment the standard of judgment, that's verse 16, the standard of judgment that every person will face when they stand before God. If you were here for CBS this past Wednesday night, and I hope if, if you don't come to CBS, I hope you, if, the, if your schedule permits, you'll come. We're studying through the parables um, of Jesus. And um, if you were here this past Wednesday night, we studied the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, some, th- this passage is going to have some of the same feel as, as what we saw in that parable last Wednesday night, at least as far as, you know, what we saw was the misplaced confidence of the Pharisee, right, and what we're going to see here. So that said, let's dive in and think first about the insufficiency of knowledge in verses 12 and 13. So Paul begins with a phrase in verse 12 that I think if any unbelieving Jew was reading this at the time, he begins with a phrase in verse 12 that I think most unbelieving Jews at the time would have heartily agreed with. So looking at the beginning of verse 12, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now, how would, have unbe- how would have an unbelieving Jew understood what Paul just said there? They would have read and heard that phrase, without the law, right? And would have immediately understood that he's talking about Gentiles um, who, who did not... That's anybody that's not Jewish. Anybody that's not Jewish would not have, have the history uh, in their ethnicity of being the chosen people of God and all the benefits that, that Israelites would have had from that. What are some of those benefits that would come with that? Well, interestingly, Paul gives us a good little summary of that. If you hold your place here and flip over to chapter 9, Paul sort of itemizes what many of those 
um, those, those benefits would have been to, a, to an unbelieving Jew, the blessings that God would have given them. So if you look at Romans chapter 9, and we don't have, we're not, I'm not going to try to trace his argument here. We'll come to that in due time. But just look at verses 4 and 5. Just look at, he's going to talk about Israelites and the, the blessings that God had given them. And he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's a, that's a lot of blessing. And, and the Jewish people had received all of these blessings by God's grace as His graciously chosen people throughout their history. Um, and, and apart from the Christ Himself, it's in that list. I think the most prized, the most prized possession listed in Romans 9, 4, and 5 to them would have been the law. It says the giving of the law. That would have been their most prized possession, the law in which they found the covenants. The law in which they, they found the promise of a coming Messiah and the law in which they had the, the spelled out for them the specific will and expectations of God for His people from day to day. The law of God. His own word to us. Now, the Jews had this. You can turn back to chapter 2 now. The Jews had this. This law, they prided themselves in this. They prided themselves as being the ones out of all the peoples on earth who had this. Um, this alone, the mere fact that they had the very words of God, the law, this, this alone was often one of their indictments against Gentiles. The Gentiles were the ones who were born and raised without the law. Um, that, that was, and that, very, that was the reason why. They grew up without knowing God's word, without the law. That's the reason they saw all Gentiles as just sinners. Sinners. And so it would have come as no, as no shock to an unbelieving Jew in verse 12 uh, whatsoever to, to, for them to have agreed with Paul that all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. They would have agreed with Paul that not only are Gentiles without the law, but they've sinned without it and they will perish without it. That's what they would have thought of Gentiles. So for the Jewish reader, no problem so far. But he goes on to say in verse 12, in the second half of verse 12, if you're looking at that, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, so the, now the Jews know that he's talking about them. They're the ones that are under the law. And when Paul says all who have sinned, under the law, will be judged by the law. Surely they, they agreed with that, but, but, based on what Paul said in the passage we looked at last week, in, in early in chapter 2, as well as what he's about to say in the very next verse, Paul is expecting them, and rightly so, to make, that they're probably going to make wrong distinctions, distinctions in their minds about what was sin under the law. Remember last week in the early part of the chapter, Paul was talking about them passing judgment on other people when they practice the very same things. He says it three times. You, you oh man, 
Do you think you'll escape the judgment of God when you, the judge, practice the very same things? The very same things. You practice the same thing. He says it over and over again, the same things, same things. And we, we explored, what does he mean by same things? What are those same things? And we say, well, if it means anything, it goes back to chapter 1 and the sins that he mentioned in chapter 1. And we said, which ones come to your mind, first of all? You probably think of the big ones, of the, the sexual sins, the, the homosexuality that he mentions in chapter 1. You probably don't mean, think about coveting and disobedient to your parents and gossiping. We, so we, we talked about that. And, 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 and we said the reason we would do that is because we have this sinful tendency in us to categorize our sins and to categorize them into bigger and smaller sins. And sometimes, because of our sinful tendencies, we take the, the smaller ones and we interpret them as some as just less serious, as, as more respectable in some way. We barely even notice them in our own hearts. And I think it's still in that line of thought here, that he, because after he calls out the Jews who, who sin under the law, he says in verse 13, "...for it is not the hearers of the law..." who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And I think Paul is here in verse 13 still taking aim at those who believe they are more righteous than they are. These are Jews evidently who hear the law, know the law, approve of everything that the law says, but they're blind to their own disobedience to what the law says. They were putting pride and their their confidence in what they knew about the Scriptures more than their obedience to the Scriptures. I mean, they, what they did was they evidently saw their knowledge of God as being nearness to God. And if we're honest, we can be prone to the same thing. We can be prone to the same thing. We of all people, we of all people, Lakeview Baptist Church, can be prone to the same thing. Um, we are people, rightly so, who, who, who prize the Scriptures. We, I, I pray it every week. I did today. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We prize it. You cannot come here on a Sunday in this hour or the next one or in the evening service which you should come to you cannot miss that we are people who rightly so not we prize not just the scriptures but in knowing the scriptures and in knowing what the scriptures say knowing doctrine and there's I mean, women of the word what did, what did Jackie say Wimp, wimpy women and all that stuff we are I didn't say it she did Knowing doctrine, knowing what it, what it teaches. And there's nothing wrong with that. You cannot love what you don't know, right? But there is a danger of loving knowledge more than obedience. Knowledge in itself is insufficient. That, that, that's what Paul calls in verse 13 being a hearer only. The mark of a believer... I, don't, I, think, I think if you've got somebody who just thinks uh, theology is just for somebody else, theology, I don't need to know that kind of stuff, that's, I find that hard to be a mark of a, of a true believer too. A true believer wants to know God. 
But, but the mark of a believer is not simply the knowledge that they have of the truth, but the obedience they strive to give to it. And, and he's indicting unbelieving Jews here who think they are righteous just because they know a lot about the law. They know a lot about God. They know a lot about the truth. They know, they know, they hear, they know, they hear, they know. Paul says, your, obedience, your, your knowledge is insufficient. It's, it, look at your obedience. And, and Paul introduces, once he says that, that knowledge is insufficient, he introduces an interesting example to the, these unbelieving Jews to demonstrate his point. And his, the example he gives is Gentile believers. That's what we're going to see in the second point um, in these next two verses. Think with me about the, the truth we see in verses 14 and 15 about the evidence of obedience. Notice, and I pointed this out when we read it, notice Paul begins verse 14 with the word for. He says at the end of verse 13, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for. For it is not the hearers of the law that are righteous. When you're reading Paul, when you're reading anybody for that matter, but especially if you're reading Paul, you always need to pay attention to the little words like that. Like seriously. Like, for, and therefore, and so that, and for this reason, and because. Why? Because Paul is always building careful arguments. That's just how he, how he thought and how he wrote. And you have to think carefully about the connections that he's making. And that certainly helps us to make sense of what he's saying here. He, when he says, for, in verse, in verse 14... He's going to give a, a reason for the claim he gave in verse 13. And, 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 and I think it, he just told the Jews at the end of verse 13 that those who are justified before God are those whose obedience to the word and the will of God give evidence to it. Right? That, the way he says that in verse 13 is doers of the law are justified. Not do, doers of the law, not as the root of our justification before God, but as the fruit of it. Not as the root, but as the fruit. Yes, Paul says doers of the law will be justified. Yeah, he says will be justified as if it's something in the future. But I think that just means will be shown in the future to be the ones who were justified. At the final judgment. I think that's his point in, the, in verse 16, which we'll see in just a minute. But his point has been those who strive to be obedient to God's word, they are the ones who are giving evidence in their life of being justified in the sight of God. And who does he claim, who does he bring as evidence of that claim? Gentile believers. The very ones that they disdain. The very ones that the Jews disdain. The very ones unbelieving Jews were prone to look down on just for being Gentiles, not for not having the law of Moses, sinners. Paul is saying those who keep the law are those who are justified for, 13 is, the ones who keep the law, those are the ones that you know are justified. How do you know that? For, verse 14, how do you explain Gentiles who obey that law even when they don't have it in physical form? Right? How do you explain the obedience of some, Paul's going to say. Paul is going to explain their, their obedience 
by saying that the reason, the reason some Gentiles, who don't even have the law, but the reason some Gentiles live obedient life, lives is because they are believers. And because they have the Holy Spirit in them, the evidence of which is their obedience. Why do we think Paul is talking about Gentile believers in verses 14 and 15? Because some people, and I myself, until just recently, uh, didn't necessarily think he's talking about believers here, but I've been convinced otherwise. Some don't believe he's talking about Gentile believers in verses 14 and 15 because verse 14 says that they, by nature, do what the law requires. And they, they read that. They, by nature, do what the law requires. They, they think that Paul's just saying, well, that sometimes unbelievers just do good things. Sometimes unbelievers do good. And that people aren't as bad as they could possibly be. As true as that is, I don't think that's what he's saying here for two reasons. One is that phrase, by nature. You see that in verse 14? Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, by nature. Our English translations take a position that is certainly possible, but not the only, and maybe, in my view, not the best translation here. Do you see how, um, in verse 14, our English translations attach by nature to the word do. Gentiles, by nature, do. Right? It attaches by nature to the word do. They, by nature, do. But that phrase, by nature, could also, in the original language, be attached to the word have. So for when Gentiles, in other words, that would say, for when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law. Do, they do not by nature have the law. It's not attached to do, but to have. And, what, and if, if that's what he says, he's simply saying that they are by nature ethnically Gentiles. By nature, they're Gentiles and not ethnic Jews who have the law of Moses. He's not talking about what, what Gentiles... He's talking about what Gentiles have by nature, not what they do by nature. And I think that's confirmed by what he says in the second reason here, which is why I think they're believers. The second reason is he says in verse 15 that these Gentiles that he's referring to, who, who in my view by nature do not have the law, he says in verse 15, these Gentiles have the work of the law written on their hearts. Which that phrase is a very clear allusion to one of the great New Covenant prophecies and promises of the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. In Jeremiah chapter 31, promising a new covenant that's coming when the, when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, he's going to bring about a new covenant, right? That's Jeremiah 31, and one of the aspects of that new covenant, which he promised in Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. That is clearly what Paul is alluding to here when he said that these Gentiles have the work of the law written on their hearts. Paul is talking about Gentile New Covenant believers in verses 14 and 15, and he's pointing to the obedience, the, the, their lives of obedience to the law, even when they weren't the ones who were born possessing the Bible and knowing the law all their life, somehow they are still being obedient to it, even not having it. How? Because the Holy Spirit is in them. The whole, God put the law within their hearts and gave them His Holy Spirit to cause them to obey it, as Ezekiel 36 point, promises. 
That's exactly what Paul, by the way, is later going to say in Romans 8 when he says, um, of all believers in Romans 8, 4, of all believers, that the, the, in, in, in every believer, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When we walk according to the Spirit, he makes us obedient to what the law says. So Paul is talking about Gentile believers who give evidence of, of obedience in their life. And he's not, he's not talking about perfect obedience in these Gentiles. Because he says in verse 15 that sometimes their conscience accuses them of doing wrong. That's not, that doesn't mean they're unbelievers. 1 John 3.20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. So sometimes we do wrong in, as believers. We do wrong and our conscience lets us know it. Believers aren't perfect, but the desire of a believer's heart is the obedience of God. And we're not content with mere knowledge of the truth. That simply puffs up. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man, like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The obedience is the fruit. It's the evidence that we have already built our house on the right foundation of Jesus Christ. And Paul's point here is to show the Jews who pride themselves in what they know, in what they know and the, the, the theology that they have in their minds. And they pride themselves in what they know, but they are merely hearers and they're not doers, don't even desire to be doers in their hearts of what it says, that there are Gentiles. He tells those Jews there are Gentiles who, in, who will inherit eternal life before them because their obedient lives are evidence that they have the law written on their hearts, not just in their ears. And they have the Holy Spirit in them to move them to obey and repent when they don't. Knowledge alone is insufficient. Obedience is evidence in a person who is justified before God. And Paul finishes this passage in verse 16, hammering that point home. And he ends it emphasizing the standard of judgment that every person will face, Jew or Gentile. Think about that with me quickly. I'm hoping we'll have some time to discuss around our tables. Verse 16. Verse 16 picks up in the middle of a sentence. New Testament scholars point out that verse 16 is easier to understand if you preface it with this phrase, all this will become clear. All this will become clear on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Really, this is a warning to unbelieving Jews or anyone who prizes knowledge to the neglect of obedience. He had said in verse 12 that the law will be the standard of judgment to every sinner. And here in verse 16, he amplifies that to show also Jesus Christ himself will be that judge. And what people did with the gospel will also be a part of that judgment. He says in verse 16 that Christ is going to judge um, every secret of every person. He's going to judge every secret of every person according to the unbending standard of the law unless that person repents and turns to Christ, the evidence of which is a changed life. Not perfect, but changed. So that the standard for a believer who is now judged according to the gospel is mercy toward us. Jesus took the unbending uh, standard of the law on himself. Judgment is based on law. Salvation is all of grace. 
Paul holds up the come in verse 16 Paul holds up the coming judgment of God to incentivize those who rely more on their knowledge than on the Holy Spirit wrought change in their life as evidence of their salvation. Our tendency our tendency is to to have a stronger passion to know than to obey. That's that's it's just true. Um and uh and the evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is, is, to hear, is to hear me say that. And to be honest, I have, a, I have an easier tendency to know than to obey. But a person in whom is the, is the Holy Spirit is when they hear of that tendency in their own heart and life is to not be content with it. Right? Uh, it's, it's like the mark of a believer is, is not somebody for whom that's just not true. But even when it is true, they're not content with it. And they don't want to stay that way. And they ask the Holy Spirit's help to produce that obedient fruit of repentance in our life. That's his point here in Romans 2, 12 to 16.